Hi, my name's Paul Grogan. Welcome to episode 23 of the All New Gaming Rules podcast. This episode is an audio version of the live Q&A that went out at the end of June 2022. A big thank you to all of my Patreon supporters who make these podcasts possible. And if you want to support me directly, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash gaming rules. And now on with the show. Right, we are live. I think we're live. Good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for joining me for June's monthly live Q&A. As always, with these live streams, let me know in the chat. Vicky's got a thumbs up, so that presumably means she can hear me. Hopefully you can hear me now as well. Uh, and the chat messages should start appearing on screen. They should do. Um, now, the format of this Q&A is going to be exactly the same as the last Q&A. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to answer all of the questions that I've had in advance on the Guild. Uh, for those of you watching for the first time, I do have a guild over on Board Game Geek, guild number 2258. Um, and what I do is a few days before these Q&As, I normally post a thread on there for people to ask questions in advance. Once we've been through all of those questions, which normally takes about 45 minutes, depending on how much I ramble, uh, we're then going to go over to the live questions from the people watching. So if you do have a question for me and you are watching this live right now, please put the word question in capitals. And then Vicky will see that and she'll transfer all of that into uh, a document which I can see. It's all very high tech here. Um, but anyway, yeah, let's, let's crack on uh, with the questions that I've been asked in advance. And the first one is from a Mr. Luke Hector from The Broken Meeple. If you're not subscribed to Luke on YouTube, definitely subscribe uh, just so you can disagree with him on his thoughts about Concordia. Um, but he's asked the question, has Board Game Arena or Tabletop Simulator presumably, or other ways of playing games online, replaced the need for me to own a physical copy of the game? Um, the, the general answer is no. However, it is true that there are certain online implementations of games which have made the board game uh, less... It's so much easier to play. The, the classic example is Through the Ages. I might play the physical version of Through the Ages at some point in the future, but when the online implementation, when the digital implementation of Through the Ages is so good, and the, as the asynchronous mode of Through the Ages is so good, almost, well, all of the games of Through the Ages that I play at the moment are using the digital version, okay? Um, Carnegie is another example, or Carnegie, however you want to pronounce it, we still haven't worked it out. Um, that, that is implemented perfectly on Board Game Arena. However, I would still own the physical version of the board game. So the answer is no. If there is a, a, a digital implementation, either be it an app, Board Game Arena, Tabletop Simulator, whatever, would that mean that if I had the game, I'd get rid of the game? Or would it stop me getting the game? No. Um, because although these online implementations are great, I would still want to own a copy of Carnegie because there are times when I would want to sit down at the table and play it. Um, and if you only have access to the online version, then that's the only way I'd be able to play it. So yeah, simple answer is no. Um, but I know a couple of people that have actually sold their copies of Gloomhaven because the digital implementation is so good and they only ever now play it digitally rather than the in-person version. Uh, and Gloomhaven's a big box. It's not like a, a little tiny game that you can store in the corner somewhere. Uh, Monica has got a very good question. Monica has got the question, uh, if I get the question from people who don't play regularly, 
Why? Uh, what do I answer to? Why do you play board games? Well, Monica, I'm going to answer the question, but I'm actually going to rephrase your question because I think the question of why do I play board games is a valid question for anybody, um, whether they whether they play board games they're not them, themselves or not, or, or whether they're completely new to the hobby or anything. Um, and it's a question which I've asked myself a couple of times over the last few years is, why do I actually play these games? And the main thing is that um, I enjoy them. I enjoy playing games, uh, generally speaking. Um, but then the follow-up question is, well, why do I enjoy them? Is it the mental challenge? Is it the social aspect of the game? What is it about playing games that I really enjoy? And I've never actually quite managed to put my finger on it. Um, I do like, certainly in Euro-style games, I do like that thought process of, oh, well, I need, I need to build a cabinet in order to fulfil that quest. And in order to build the cabinet, I need to get three wood and I need to hire a carpenter. So I need to go to the market and hire the carpenter. But Dave's been to the car, the, the market this turn, so I can't. I'm going to have to go next turn, and I also need to go to the forest to chop down the wood. I like that. That thought process is kind of a little bit like problem solving. Is working out the puzzle of how I'm going to get from A to B in order to, you know, achieve victory. Um, but I, I enjoy playing games for various other reasons as well. Um, but yeah, so that the, the fundamental question, uh, the fundamental answer to why I play board games is because I enjoy them. As for why I enjoy them, there's a there's a whole multitude of, of reasons why. Next question is from Brian. And I'm very disappointed because Brian has only got one biscuit-related question this month. Um, but his non-biscuit-related question is, during the period where I've been full-time in the games industry, which has been about eight years now, um, whether working for games companies or running my own channel or whatever it is that I'm doing, have I ever felt like I can't be bothered with this and just wanted to go and do something that wasn't board game related. I'm looking at Vicky because I personally think in the last eight years since I've been full-time working in the industry, I have never felt like that. Have there, has there ever been a time? I mean, don't get me wrong. There have been times where I've got utterly fed up with what I'm working on. For example, rule books or something like that. And I've needed to go and take a break. But I've taken a break by going and playing a game online or painting some miniatures for a game. I've never felt the need to get away from board games and do something else. Um, and I consider myself quite lucky in that respect, because like I've said many times before, the danger of turning a hobby into a job is that you then start to lose interest in the actual hobby itself, and I never have. Um, I'm still just as passionate about playing games now than I ever was, if, if not more so. So, yeah, I've, I've never wanted to just say switch off and, and and go and do something else completely and now onto the biscuit related question more importantly what do i think of jaffa joe nuts are they canon or are they heresy jaffa joe nuts are possibly my favorite form of jaffa cake um we tried them um a while ago when they came out and in fact uh, nick and Gemma that came around on friday brought me a pack of jaffa joe nuts as a as a gift uh, which i haven't opened them yet but no jaffa joe nuts Definitely get my thumbs up approval. Right, next question um, from Oddity. This is a good question. Which would be better for the hobby? If twice as many new games were released each year, or if half as many games are released each year? The reason why I think it's a good question is I've been saying now for about two to three years that there are too many games coming out. However, the reason I'm saying that is from a purely personal, selfish point of view. There are too many games coming out 
that I'm able to spend time playing and looking into all of the ones that I would like to play. There are, and, and, and then out of the games that come out that I've played that are really good, I don't have enough time to play them as many times as I want to play them. Um, so from a personal, uh, a selfish point of view, there are too many games coming out. However, lots and lots of games coming out means that people have more choice. More choice is always good. The downside of too many games coming out is the number of games come out which are full of errors, either a bad rulebook or they're not designed properly or whatever. And I personally think that the way that the industry has gone over the last four or five years, maybe a little longer, is that um, certainly with Kickstarter and certainly people's um, fascination with, oh, look at that, it, it's got miniatures, it's based on a well-known IP, I'm going to back it. Oh, it's $300, I don't care, look at all the miniatures. Oh, it's based on it's based on an IP I like, and the game is rubbish. Um, and and for, for all I know, the game might be okay. But what I'm saying is that there have been so many of those that have come out where the rulebook was terrible, or the gameplay was terrible, or the game was totally broken, or it was full of errata, or anything else. Um, and that's the problem that I have personally with the, the hobby at the moment and the amount of games coming out not just the amount of games coming out but the number of games coming out that aren't thoroughly as tested as they should be anyway um but yeah i i personally if it was down to me half the number of games coming out each year would be good but as i'm saying that i'm thinking i don't know and you're saying which would be better for the hobby that's a very good question. I'm not sure that I'm qualified to answer that because better for the hobby? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Moving on. Mark has said, do I find that Board Game Arena and Tabletop Simulator and other platforms are available as well um, is a good way to test out games prior to purchase because it's helped him th sift through games so that his purchases are keepers rather than you taking a punt on a game? Absolutely, 100%. Online implementations of board games, whether it be on Board Game Arena or Tabletop Simulator, are a brilliant way for people to try before they buy. I'm a big believer in try before you buy. And I love demoing new games to people at a convention because I actually quite like it when I demo a game to somebody at a convention and they play it and they go, thanks very much for that demo. I know, I know this isn't a game for me. And if it weren't for this demo, I would have bought it taken it home spent time playing it and then had to sell it and what you've done by teaching me and showing me how the game works is I now know that this isn't a game for me and I can pass on it I personally get a lot of satisfaction out of that because I've helped them make a decision to purchase uh, to purchase that game or not the publisher who might hire me to run to, to do the demos at their booth who stood beside me when they say thanks very much I'm now not going to buy the game they might not be so happy but as far as I'm concerned I'm very happy about it so yes Online implementations, if you do get chance to try them um, as a way of checking out the games beforehand, definitely definitely do that if you can. Uh, Kenneth has got an ask, a question. Does working full-time in the industry and having the opportunity to play so many games, uh, less than you might think, make me personally have higher standards uh, for what constitutes a good and well-designed game? Absolutely. And I don't know, Kenneth, if that is... The fact that I've worked full-time in the industry and I've now had so much exposure to the design process, not just the design process, but the whole process that goes into creating a game, writing and editing the rulebook, playtesting and everything else. I'm fully immersed in that and I've experienced that 
from all sorts of different angles. So I do have higher expectations uh, of games. And it is, as I say, it is disappointing when games come out with bad rule books or with clearly b broken rules or with rules missing or whatever. What You know, these, these things still happen and it is disappointing um, because I've worked for a number of companies where I've been part of the team that has actively worked on preventing those problems from happening. So I know it can be done, but it takes a lot of time and effort and money. Right, next question from James is, which game do I think has the best artwork on the inside of the game box? Now, I've mentioned this on a few of my unboxing videos before, that um, I really like it when, when uh, game boxes have artwork on the inside and it isn't just a plain box. Um, but I'm not going to be able to answer the question right now, James, because uh, I can't think. I know Perseverance had something on the inside that was quite nice. Burn Cycle had something on the inside that was quite nice. But I don't know what my favourite one would be. So what we've done is we've actually opened this up on the Guild as a question. So head on over to the, uh, the Guild. Vicky's going to put a link to it in the chat right now. Um, but the Guild on BoardGameGeek2258, uh, that question is on there. So if you've got your thoughts on what game has got the best artwork on the inside of the box, then please stick it up on BoardGameGeek. And if you can attach a picture as well, that would be really great. Although attaching pictures, I think, on BoardGameGeek is a bit tricky. Um, but yeah, if you, if you can do that, then, then that's good. Um, next question from Monica. How do I feel about custom inserts? And I don't know if, Monica, that's a leading question because you know how I feel about custom inserts. Um, so custom inserts. I have my own thoughts on custom inserts, which is probably in the minority, that a lot of them look good. And if you've got the game flat and you open the box lid and you see the insert there with all of the bits in, it, it looks nice. It looks nice. It looks tidy. However, I have two problems with your standard range of inserts. And I'm not going to name any manufacturers, um, but you know the standard inserts, which basically don't have lids. The two problems I have, number one problem, every time I transport that game somewhere, bits fall out. So unless you transport that game and you keep it horizontal and you keep it flat and you put it in a bag and you keep it flat and you take it somewhere and then you take it out and it's okay. But generally speaking, when I'm transporting games, I will take them and put them on the side. And the problem with those inserts is unless the, the box is absolutely rammed full and then you put like an elastic band around it, then as it's being transported, it will separate slightly. And then what will happen is some of the components will fall out of whatever insert they're in. So almost every game that I've got with an insert, every time I transport it, some of the bits fall out. And that for me is a problem. That's my first problem. The second problem I have, and I don't understand how other people don't have this problem, because I've spoken to people about this a number of times and they're like, oh, I don't have that problem. But imagine your, your, your inserts for games where it's like a little square compartment and you fill that square compartment with cubes and it looks really nice. You've got a nice tidy square compartment filled with cubes. Okay, now you need to get those cubes out to play the game. And sure, you can put your hand in and you can get out a few cubes, but the ones down at the bottom are quite hard to get out. Some of them stick to the corners or the edges. It can't just be me that has that problem, but you're reaching in and you're trying to get, and it takes you ages. And these games are supposed to make setup quicker. 
Uh, and that's what I don't quite understand. Now, sometimes if you take that little insert out and put it on the table next to you, fine. And then you can reach in and take the bits out of the thing when you need them. But quite often, these, these compartments are there with all of the other ones. And what you have to do is you have to take the compartment out and you have to tip it upside down to get all of the bits out. I still just like Ziploc bags. For me, Ziploc bags doesn't actually make the game setting up any longer. Um, now, there are a range of inserts, and I am going to mention one by name here, and this is game trays. So the game trays inserts, if you've got any game trays inserts for games, you will, you will know. They are basically plastic molded units, so they are custom inserts, but every single one comes with a clip-on lid, which means you can transport them absolutely anywhere. And if you don't know what I mean, I did an unboxing video earlier this week for Stars of Akarios. Go and check out my unboxing video for Stars of Akarios because it comes with game trays inserts and they are really, really well designed. And game trays inserts, I love. Absolutely love them because they are, they're neat. All of the stuff goes in there. You put the plastic clip on top. It all goes in. You can transport that game anywhere and nothing will fall out of place. So yeah, that's how I feel about custom inserts. In summary, <laughs> after rambling for five minutes. Um, Rodrigo's got a question. Which heavy games have I found surprisingly easy to teach or learn? And do I follow a general structure when teaching? So of, of the recent heavy games that I find easy to teach, Carnegie and Bitoku, I think are both either medium to heavy games or heavy games, depending on your experience with games. But though both of those, for some reason, just sat with me really comfortably. And I found it relatively easy to learn those games, even though the rule book for Bitoku isn't particularly great. Um, but then, after playing them a couple of times, I was able to teach Bitoku from memory every single rule without needing reference to the rulebook. And I did the same with Carnegie as well. So I think it depends on the games. There are certain games which just sit really comfortably with me and all of the rules just go into my head and then I'm able to just, you know, teach it from memory and it goes quite smoothly. Um, but not every game. There are There are certain heavy games out there that I've played where the rules are a little bit even if the rule book is good, the rules are a little bit opaque. You know, it's like, oh, well, if you do that action, you move this cube up this track two spaces, then you have to move a green disc over there. But you can only move a green disc over there if there's a green disc over there to match the current weather or whatever. And then, yeah, and suddenly you've got to explain that. And it's just rules. Uh, and there's, there's a sheer weight of rules, then it does make it a bit trickier to teach. But yeah, there's quite a few games which are classed as heavy games which I find it a breeze to teach. Through the ages, I could teach through the ages from memory um, because I've been playing it for the, like, the last 14 years, whatever. Uh, and Mage Knight is another game that I probably could teach most of Mage Knight from memory. Uh, and that for me just all feels logical and makes sense. The next question from Rodrigo is, do I follow a general structure when teaching? Yes, I do. Um, and I've answered this question lots of times and I've, I have actually done seminars on teaching games which normally are about 30 minutes long so I'm not going to give you a, a 30 minute seminar now on how to teach games but generally speaking I do have a structure and you start with the theme even if the theme is pasted on and, and very very light you start with the theme then you start with an explanation of whether this is a cooperative game or a competitive game then you talk about the victory conditions maybe how long the game lasts if it's a fixed number of rounds or whatever and then you start diving into the detail but you've got to start with the high level stuff first because otherwise you'll just you'll just lose people. Right, next question from Roman. 
in my latest video log, I mentioned that there are old games that I wouldn't play anymore because the game design has moved on since that time. Um, and he's asking me to give an example. There are two examples that spring to mind. One of them is Hero Quest, and another one is Talisman. Now, both of these are very old games. Talisman first came out in 1983, so that's 39 years old. Hero Quest came out at some point in the 80s. But both of those games, again, this is my personal opinion, is that game design has moved on so much that those two games, specifically targeting those two games, are unplayable for me. I would get no enjoyment whatsoever from playing those games. In fact, I dabbled with Hero Quest during lockdown on the channel, uh, and it was one of the most awful experiences that I've had. Um, it's not the fact that it's just roll to move. It's the fact that it's roll to move with no mitigation. And if you, if you don't roll enough and you end up one space away from the monster, you literally do nothing. But also, the way that the maps and the scenarios were designed is that you end up with four characters and you just end up with a conga line of people and only the person at the front can do anything and the other three are like well we, we can't attack even the spellcaster who's stuck at the back needs line of sight and line of sight doesn't go through people so i mean i played the game loads in the 80s and absolutely loved it because i was playing DD and i probably wanted I, I probably liked the idea of an elf and a dwarf going around rolling dice and hitting monsters but for me that game is unplayable now um and there are so many other modern board games that have been based on those games that do things in a much better way that I would enjoy playing that why would I want to go back and play some of those older games um so yeah they, they are there are there are a couple of examples and apologies to any hero quest or talisman fans out there um which old games that used to be widely popular do I now find mechanically outdated and why yeah they're they're the ones I mean talisman is still probably very popular now um but for me yeah way way outdated Next question from Jeff. Jeff is asking me, uh, he's been wondering about the game Ark Nova. Do I think that there are too many cards in Ark Nova? Uh, and how do I get them all shuffled up appropriately? So this is a really good question because uh, Terraforming Mars, the game that Ark Nova is very often compared to, also has an absolutely massive deck of cards and every single card is, is unique. Now, the advantage with a massive deck of cards in both Terraforming Mars and Ark Nova is that no two games are going to be the same. You are going to see a different range of cards every time you play. I mean, I could play Ark Nova. The last time I played Ark Nova, a couple of cards came out. I'm like, I've never seen these cards before. These are new. So having that sheer volume of cards does make replay replayability higher. But the downside is that it makes it a little bit more random as to whether you get things. For example, my personal goal at the start of that game was to collect, um, uh, let's say, reptiles. Okay, Because you've got this massive, massive deck of cards, it could be that the reptiles are all in the bottom half of the deck and, I, and not a single reptile comes out. Whereas the other player, whose objective is to collect as many birds as possible, every other card coming out is a bird. You can have that, okay? What should happen if 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 the distribution of, of the cards is perfect, you should have a reptile every five or six cards and you should have a bird every five or six cards. But that never happens. You always get weird clumps and mixes. Um, so that is a downside of having a large number of cards is that the the randomness of which ones will come out or not can skew the game a little bit. 
Same with anything, same with the research icons or anything else. Um, how do I get them all shuffled up appropriately? That's the other downside. It is simply the physical, how are we going to get all of these cards randomized before the start of the game? So what I normally do is, because there's this massive stack of cards, I will, first of all, divide them into six different piles or five different piles or whatever. I'll shuffle each pile separately. Then I will split each of those piles into two separate piles and I'll mix them up. Then I'll shuffle those separately. Then I'll basically randomly take a certain amount off each deck and build one big stack. That's what I do, but it is a long process. Um, and yeah, Jeff says, been wondering if there are too many cards. It, yeah, I don't know. Let me let me know what you think. Either if you're watching this live, let me know in the chat right now. Or if you're watching this back afterwards, leave me a comment. And, and just, just in your opinion, does Ark Nova have too many cards? Yes or no? Right. Next question, while, we're, while people are answering that one. This is from Andy Pelton, and he's got a few related questions. And the first question is quite long. So I'm going to have a drink. And I'm going to try and summarise this. Andy wants to know, do I think there is a spiralling effect happening in board games where companies are making, uh, they are overproduced games, and they're using crowdfunding for short periods, and they're not using conventional retail to distribute them afterwards, which is creating a level of FOMO. That is causing people to back games which are hitting the £100 per game mark without actually knowing how good the game is, but they're backing it because it looks amazing. Um, I'm doing the quotes because Andy's put the quotes in his, in his message. And if I don't buy it now, I won't be able to get it later. Also creating a secondary market where people are selling the game for double the amount that they backed it because of said FOMO. Uh, and it's not going to retail, is going to lead to prices for games to creep up so that the average game player is priced out. Right, now, first of all, all of the things that Andy's mentioned, I, I, I agree. I think that is the way that the hobby has gone. And in the last year alone, even in the last six months, I have seen, personally, a number of games hitting Kickstarter with an extremely expensive price tag for what looks like the kind of game that I would have gone to Essen 20 years ago and bought for 30 euros or even 25 euros. Or in fact, when I went to Essen 20 years ago, it probably wasn't even euros. <laughs> um, but what I'm saying is there are games which come out now, which I think should just be a standard game, not deluxified, just normal components, wooden cubes, little meeples, all of that lot, you know, for a standard price and normal and hit retail. But what is happening is, as Andy says, a lot of publishers are making these super, super deluxe versions of the game with all of these fancy, fancy components, which the game doesn't need, right? I will honestly say the game does not need them. Sure, it looks pretty, it looks nice. But then what they're doing is saying, oh, this super, super deluxe version isn't going to be available at retail. That's a marketing strategy. That that's just how the world works. It's not from a, from a gamer point of view. Uh, I personally don't like that. But from a marketing point of view, I know why publishers do it, um, because they sell more and they're they're in the industry to to make money. Um, so do I think that there's a spiral effect happening? Yes, I do. However, I'm hoping it stops. Because there's a few games that have come out recently that have gone to Kickstarter with super, super deluxe versions that are really expensive, where the Kickstarter has been cancelled because it hasn't funded well enough. And I'm kind of hoping 
that those publishers and other publishers see that and think, wait a minute, this is a game that should be $35 or $40 or $50, whatever. And we're selling it, a super, super deluxe version for $120. Why are we doing this? You know, what? why are we trying to make what is just a standard Euro game into this super, super deluxified game? I don't know. I, I'm not sure whether it's good for the hobby and it's good for people's wallets. What also surprises me is that some of these Kickstarters seem to do amazingly well. And don't get me wrong, if I'm playing a game and it's got super deluxified components, it looks nicer. I just don't know whether it's actually needed. And this follow-up question is, I'm really curious to see what you think of this as well. So if you're, if you're what we can start a thread on the guild maybe, but if, if we don't, if, if you're not watching this live, if you're watching this back afterwards and you've got thoughts on this, let me know what you think, because I've got my own thoughts on it. Um, but Andy is asking, should publishers only produce a super deluxe version of a new game, for example, Foundations of Rome, uh, which does look amazingly gorgeous, uh, or should they produce a version with cardboard tiles and cubes that everybody can afford? And then, maybe, a couple of years later, produce a deluxe version for those who really want nice components. I, I can't answer that. I, I don't know what publishers should do. Um, but also, I'm not a publisher and I'm not a marketing person. So although I have my own thoughts on it, those thoughts are not for my professional working in the industry because I don't really know that side of it. I just work on rules and videos. Um, uh, but yeah. Uh, and also, are game boxes for said deluxe games getting too big? The Foundations of Rome box is absolutely massive and I've seen it. I was actually going to um, prepare for this by saying, oh, no, no, they're not too big. And then I was going to get out my copy of Perseverance, which is a massive box. Then I was going to get my copy of Stars of Akarios, which is a massive box. Um, and I was going to basically sit here with enough boxes piled up that you wouldn't be able to see me. But we got back from shopping late and I wasn't able to have time to do that. Um, the final question from Andy is, do I think the crowdfunding for board games is going to implode soon due to increasingly high shipping costs, where in some cases, the shipping costs are three quarters or more of the game. And I don't know, Andy. I'm, I'm as confused as probably you are. When a game comes out and it goes to Kickstarter and it's a $100 game with $75 shipping, if you are one of those people who back that game... Let me know why. Because is it is it because this is your only chance to get it and you're happy to pay $75 shipping for a $100 game? Because to me, that seems extortionate. Now, I caveat this by saying that I am very fortunate in that I work full-time in the industry. I, generally speaking, get free copies of games that I've worked on. Uh, and because I also have... Uh, I'm a content creator and I'm an influencer... I also get review copies of games from some publishers. So I'm not your typical gamer where I'm having to purchase the games and make those decisions. But it surprises me with the global shipping costs as high as they are, that people are still willing. And I, I don't, I'm not saying you're wrong for doing it. I am just curious as to, as to, as to what goes through your mind when you're paying $175 for a $100 game. Is it because that is your only opportunity to get the game and you won't be able to get it later? Um, and the fact that the shipping costs are what they are, is that just is that just how it is? Because personally, 
if I was in the position where I wasn't in the position I am um, with, with getting the free copies of games, I would be questioning, and I'm probably going to start a discussion about this later on the Slack channel, because a lot of my Patreon supporters do back games with very high shipping costs, and I'm curious to know why. And I'm also curious to know, if I wasn't in the position I'm in, whether I would end up doing the same, because that's just how it is. I don't know. Anyway, thank you very much, Andy, for the questions. Uh, and yeah, it's something that I, I think about quite a lot. Next question from Mick. Let's have a bit of a change of pace. Let's talk about... Mick is asking about multiplayer games which are effectively multiplayer solitaire. And for those people who don't know, the term multiplayer solitaire is where you're playing a game with multiple people, but what you're doing has very little or no effect on the other people. And uh, yeah, he, he's asking me, do I have a preference? I don't have a preference other than I have no problem whatsoever with multiplayer solitaire games. A lot of people don't like multi games that are multiplayer solitaire and don't see the point in playing them. You might as well play a computer game. For me, no. I absolutely have no problem whatsoever with multiplayer solitaire games. Do I have a, um, a preference for multiplayer solitaire or ones with player interaction? For me, being a Eurogamer, I generally like a low element of player interaction, unless it's a two-player game. Two-player game, I have no problem with it. But if it's, a, if it's a three or more player game, then I want my player interaction to be low or I want it to be indirect. I don't want it to be direct conflict or anything like that in a game with three or more players. Um, Right, uh, Mick's also asking, uh, did I play Pandemic Legacy Season 1? And if so, what did I think of it? Yes, I have played Pandemic Legacy Season 1 all the way through to the end. My thoughts on the game are... I've got, I've got two main thoughts on the game. First of all, although Pandemic Legacy was not the first Legacy game, it, uh, the first Legacy game was Risk Legacy, but Pandemic Legacy cannot be... Uh, it cannot be underestimated the impact that Pandemic Legacy has had on the hobby. I think whilst Risk Legacy was supposed to be quite good, I've never played it, Pandemic Legacy put Legacy Gaming on the map, literally. Um, and since then, Legacy Games have become absolutely massive. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe it was Risk Legacy that did that, but I personally think Pandemic Legacy has been a, a wake-up call for the industry, and it's actually turned people onto Legacy Games that they may not have been interested in before. So it cannot be uh, understated the impact that it's had on the hobby. As for playing it and enjoying it, my experience of Pandemic Legacy Season 1 was very similar to what, what a lot of other people said. We absolutely loved it when we started it. The fact that we are doing something which is actually having an impact and we're drawing things and we're putting stickers on a board, we're doing something which means something. We are, we are affecting our future games. It was exciting. And, oh my God, we've opened a box. And what's in the box? Oh, it's these things. Oh, that's exciting. So we got all of that dopamine hit from doing all of those things. The middle of the campaign was a little bit mm, not sure. And unfortunately for us, when we played the last two or three games of it, what should have been coming, what should have been coming to an exciting climax, and we were really looking forward to it, we actually played the last two sessions of Pandemic Legacy as a season one, to just get it over and done with because we were all a bit bored with it. And that's, it's it's unfortunate that it kind of fizzled out for us. Um, 
But yeah, it's just one of those things. We we did enjoy it um, for the first half, at least anyway. Right, we're going to have a break now and we're going to talk about the contest. So every month as part of this live Q&A, I do a giveaway. It is a giveaway for £50 of games vouchers from Games Law. Games Law uh, sponsors the show by giving me £25 each month and then I add £25 of my own money each month to give somebody who is watching this a £50 Games Law voucher, which you can spend at Games Law uh, to buy board games. Um, now, the last month's Q&A... Uh, I did the draw earlier on today, um, and let's have a look. Graham Rawlings won. So congratulations, Graham. I don't know if you're watching this live uh, today, but you watched last month's live Q&A, and you entered the contest, and your name came out of the hat. Now, uh, this month's contest is, again, to win, 20, to, to win 50, 50 pounds of games ventures from Games Law. All you need to do to enter this contest is you need to go to a Google form, uh, which Vicky's going to put a link to in the chat right now, and just fill in that form. The secret word today is Billy, because I went to Ikea earlier on and I bought a new Billy bookcase this afternoon. Um, so the secret word is Billy. Now, patron supporters of mine, without whom this channel wouldn't work, if you don't know what Patreon is, it is a crowdfunding platform which I use to help finance the channel and pay for a lot of the stuff that I do. Uh, and without the patron support, yeah, the, the channel probably wouldn't exist. Um, patron supporters get an extra entry. So if you're not a patron supporter, if you enter the contest, you get one entry into the hat, um, a virtual ticket into the hat. If you're a patron supporter of mine, you get two entries into the hat. So that does mean that patron supporters do have more chance of winning the contest. But that's because without the patron supporters, I wouldn't be able to do this live Q&A. So yeah, a big thank you to all of my patron supporters for funding the channel. Graham is not a patron supporter. So just in case you think, oh, it's always patron supporters who win the contest. Most of the time it is, because to be fair, three quarters of the people watching this video are patron supporters of mine. Um, and, you know, that is just the way that the waiting goes. But yeah, sometimes a non-patron supporter wins. And that's what Graham is. So thank you very much, Graham, for watching the videos. Um, and congratulations on winning the £50 worth of vouchers. And good luck to everybody who is entering it. By the way, the contest for this month closes the day of the next live Q&A. So whenever the next live Q&A is, which will be the last Wednesday in July, which is the 27th. So the 27th of July will be the next live Q&A you have until that time to enter this contest. So if you're watching this, or if you're listening to this uh, podcast, or if you're watching this Q&A on the 26th of July, thinking, oh, I'm too late to enter the contest, you're not, because I will do the draw on the morning of the 27th. Right, going back to the questions, we've got a few more, and then we'll go over to the live questions. How are we doing for time? Almost quarter two. Let's have some orange juice. Right, David has got a question. Is there a common game design rules mistake that I run across? And he's not talking about bad rules writing here. He's talking about a game with a good rule book uh, and good artwork and everything else, but it's a common bad rule habit of game design. Maybe a rule that is off theme or a rule that has too many exceptions or a rule that messes up the flow of the game. Um, this is all down to personal preference, okay? The, the honest answer is no, I don't come across a common game design mistake. And in fact, it would be unfair of me to call it a game design mistake. 
um, because that is all down to the game designer's personal preference. And I have my own personal preference, and even some games designers who I'm massive fans of, uh, who make great games, who make great games that I absolutely love, some of them have certain elements that they put into their games, which I personally don't like. So there are two main things that, that, that spring to mind, which I don't like, which designers who, who I respect quite often use. The first one of those is revealing information later than I would like to have it. Um, so for example, if a game has an end of game scoring condition, like if you build five clay factories, you will get 10 points at the end of the game, right? For example, I would want to see that card at the very start of the game. I don't want to be surprised halfway through the game. Oh, by the way, halfway through the game, at the end of the game, if you've built five clay factories, you're going to get 10 points. Because then, you know, Brenda, who's playing the game, who, oh, well, I've already built four of them. And now all of a sudden, all I need to do is build one more and I've got 10 points. Whereas me, well, I didn't build any clay factories. If I'd have known that was the end of game condition, I would have possibly been building clay factories. So I don't like that. I don't like when what I class as important information that I would have wanted to know at the start of the game doesn't get revealed until sometime in the game. Okay. Uh, a classic example of that comes uh, from the, the C cards in Nusfjord. I play with a house rule for those cards because I don't like waiting until halfway through the game to see what those cards are. The second thing, and this has actually become something that I've only been aware of this year, but I have started to really dislike chained actions. Now, what I mean by chained actions, chained actions is I'm taking my turn. In, the, in, in my turn, I choose one of six actions to do, and I do that action. And I'm doing that action, and when I do that action, I move from here to here to here, and I've moved a cube over a space, which allows me to do another action. Okay, but I'm still in the middle of resolving the first action. I haven't finished resolving the first action yet, but in the middle of resolving the first action, I've moved a cube onto a space. And that space has got a bonus on it that allows me to do another action. So we're going to have to just pause for a second. Remember where I am. I'm doing that action. I'm now going to go over here and do that action. Okay, and I'm going to do that action. And that action allows me to collect three gold. All right, I've collected three gold. Oh, well, wait a minute. I have a unique power that says whenever you collect three or more gold on your turn, perform the fishing action. Right, so hang on a minute. We've put our first action on hold. I'm in the middle of doing my second action. As part of doing my second action, which was chained off the first action, I get to go fishing because of my special ability. Right, we're going to go fishing. I finished fishing now. Where was I? Oh yeah, I'm over here. So I'll now finish resolving action number two and then Oh, wait a minute, I was still doing action number one. And five minutes later, I finished my turn. I personally don't like that for a few reasons. One, longer player turns means more downtime for the other players. Uh, two, I forget where I'm up to. I, 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 see, I see it a lot in games, and I personally don't like it. But that's not a fault. I'm not saying it's a mistake of the game design. It's just not something which I personally think is, is good in a game because you lose track of where you are. And you end up with, as I say, turns that spiral out of control. Because then what happens is the next player says, oh, I'm just going to go fishing, collect two fish, done. You know, and the first player took five minutes for their move. Um, 
Adam has got a question. Adam was asking, uh, Adam has watched one of my old review videos of Forum Trajanum. Do I still love it? His guess is that I haven't played it much recently. You're absolutely right, Adam. Forum Trajanum was one of my favourite games that came out in the year that it came out. Uh, it's by Stefan Feld. Very, very, very good game. Absolutely love it. Um, and I did love it. And all the times I've played it, I loved it. However, there's two reasons why I haven't played it. One, there's too many new games coming out. Would I go back and play it again? Yes, I absolutely would. So it, I I haven't not played it because I don't like it anymore. It's just because with new games coming out all the time, it's very difficult to keep up. Um, but also, I believe that there's a bit of a balance issue with the game. And that became apparent after a few games. And then speaking to various other people online, a lot of other people felt that there was a bit of a balance issue as well, which is a little bit of a shame. But mechanically, I think the game is absolutely fantastic. Um, Adam also says that it's a shame that I don't do review videos anymore because um, he used to enjoy them very much. Now, yeah, he's right that I don't do review videos as such, but every month I do a monthly video log. And if you want to see my opinions on games, then I would strongly recommend checking out my monthly video log because it's about an hour to an hour and 15 minutes once a month where I talk about all of the games that I've played and generally speaking, I give a review of them and I tell you whether I like them or not. Um, Adam also asks, now that I'm retired <laughs> from game rules, uh, am I giving my verdict on games that I worked on? So just to clarify, I'm not retired in any way. Um, it was a little bit of a joke. Um, I announced last October that I am stepping back from being a rulebook writer and rulebook editor in order to focus more on the channel and produce more videos for the channel. Um, that has mostly happened. I am still working on one rulebook at the moment, which is the Batman Gotham City Chronicles solo rules. And I'm going to be helping out a little bit with the Inventions rulebook, Vital Lacerda's next game. But I am no longer a full-time rulebook writer and editor. So I kind of joked that I've retired. Um, I haven't retired at all. I still work full-time in the board game industry and I still work a lot of hours, less than I used to. Um, but does that mean I am now going to start giving my verdict on games that I've worked on? No, not at all. Because as I say, I haven't retired um, and I still work on games. So it, it would be professionally wrong of me to give my opinion on games. Um, he's specifically asking about my thoughts on Loot Island. He thinks it's great. Uh, he hasn't played it in a few years. Loot Island was very clever. Um, but Loot Island, I don't think, uh, I don't think Loot Island got its audience. I think it was clever but the gameplay was a little bit obscure for people to understand what you were supposed to do on the first game. And a lot of games these days, if they're not a hit from game one, you're not going to find people to play it again because there's so many games coming out. Uh, Hans has got a question. Uh, doesn't know if it was asked in an earlier Q&A, but which existing game would I like to see get an official solo mode? Now, offhand can't think of one. But you said you'd be very interested in an official solo mode for Merlin because you don't think it has one. I also would be very interested in an official mode, solo mode for Merlin because I'm a fairly big solo gamer now. I play a lot of solo games and I think Merlin is fantastic. I love Merlin. I think it's a brilliant game. So if there isn't an official solo mode for Merlin, then count me in for that one. Um, but this might, this, this could be another question for the guild as well. So Chrissy, if you want to turn this, Chrissy is one of my uh, patron supporters who 
uh, adds the questions into the guild from this live Q&A. So there is going to be, I can see, I can hear Chrissy typing right now. On the guild, in a few minutes time, there is going to be a question, which if, you, if you've got an idea of what you want to answer, head on over to the guild and answer it. Uh, which existing game that there isn't a solo mode for, would you like to see a solo mode for? Um, I'm going to go with Merlin Hands because that's a good suggestion and I can't think of anything. I'm looking around because that has a solo mode, that has a solo mode, that has a solo mode. <laughs> a lot of these do have a solo mode. Um, right, the final set of questions before we go to the live questions is from Wade. And Wade's got four questions. First one, is there a game that I have never played but I know about that I would love to play but I've never gotten round to it? And the answer to that is yes, loads of games. As for love to play, there's probably a few, but the ones that spring to mind are Mechs versus Minions, because a friend of mine, Ian, lent me his copy of the game about three years ago. It's still in the other room. I still haven't played it. I still want to play it. I'm not going to say that I would love to play it. Um, I, I want to play it because I want to see what it's like, but I've never played it. Also, uh, Luke Hector keeps banging on about Sentinels of the Multiverse, um, and I've never played that. So I I, I want to play that just to see if it's any good or not. Um, but th th there's probably a lot of other games as well. I mean, I can guarantee that there are lots of games out there that I would love to have a chance to play. It's just a case of too many games. The next question from Wade is, what is the most important cheese to include on a charcuterie board for a game night? Now, have I pronounced it correctly? Because I've never heard that word before. No, I've never heard of it. So I looked it up and it is the board. If you don't know what a charcuterie board is, it's the board that you put like ham and cheese on that you present. Anyway, what is the most important cheese to include on a charcuterie board for a game night? For me, it would have to be Wensleydale because of Wallace and Gromit. Um, plus Wensleydale is really nice. Um, next... This is another question that I'm not going to be able to answer. <laughs> uh, what would be my top two to three meeples in a game? He said, number one would be Aqua Garden, number two would be Everdell, and number three would be Nanga Parbat. Now, I've never heard of Aqua Garden or Nanga Parbat, so presumably, Wade, you're asking about games with nice-looking meeples in. Um, and yeah, I can't think of any offhand. I only read this question about 20 minutes just before the live Q&A started. Um... Yeah, I'd have to have a think about that. Let's let's start a thread on Slack, uh, and I'll and I'll have a think about it, and uh, let's see what what the top meeples are for board games, because I do like custom meeples, and there are some really cool ones out there. The final question from Wade is: If Eno Tool and Jakub Rozalski were not options, and I had to wallpaper my entire home with board game art from a single board games designer stroke artist, who would it be? Very easy question for me to answer, and that is Michael Menzel. Michael Menzel's artwork, he did uh, Pillars of the Earth board. He did a lot of game boards in the sort of, um, about 10, 15 years ago. Legends of Andor, uh, he did, um, and yeah, he did Pillars of the Earth. It's just gorgeous. So I absolutely love Michael Menzel's um, art style, uh, and that's probably the, the artist that I would choose. If you have any other suggestions, put them in the, put them in the chat. Or if you again, if you're not watching this live, let me know in the comments which board game artist would you choose to wallpaper your entire home with board game artwork from. Um, right, that's it. That's the end of all of the questions from the guild. So just a quick mention again about the contest. £50 worth of game vouchers. You can win 
£50 versus game, worth of game vouchers. Now, the reason why I'm saying that is these live Q&As normally get about 1,000 views in total. How many people are watching live? 87. Wow, that's more than we've ever had before. Um, so we've got 87 people watching this live. And over the course of the next couple of weeks, these will have about 1,000 views in total. Only 100 people ever enter the contest. Okay, so if you're watching this, all you need to do is click on the link, go to the form, fill in the answer. The secret word is Billy and you could win £50 worth of games vouchers. If you're in the UK, why not? Why not enter the contest? Um, right. Next question. Graham Charlton. Question. Star Wars Rebellion. Yes. Def definitely. Absolutely, Graham. And if I wasn't doing a Patreon only stream for the King tonight, I'd be up for that. Um, so yeah, me and Graham are going to be playing Star Wars Rebellion at some point, and also me and Rick are going to be playing Star Wars Rebellion at some point because Rick's got the physical game. For those people who don't know, uh, every day, every year on Star Wars Day, May the fourth, Rick comes over and we we play Star Wars games, right? However, this year somebody had COVID, uh, which I think was me. I think it was me that had COVID this year, or at least I hadn't had COVID. Or I'd had COVID and I was still recovering, or something. I don't. I can't remember. So we did it. We did it online, uh, and me and me and Rick played Star Wars Rebellion uh, this year for Star Wars Day. Um, I'd never played Star Wars Rebellion anymore. So going back to the question earlier on, find a game that I would love to play but never had the chance to play until two months ago. It was Star Wars Rebellion, or one month ago. Um, Star Wars Rebellion is a game that I've been wanting to play for a very, very, very long time. Um, Oh, Star Wars Armada as well. I really want to play Star Wars Armada and X-Wing again and the Star Wars LCG. Basically, any Star Wars game. Um, ne next question from Wei Jen. Uh, what's the strangest thing I've ever eaten? Oh. oh. That's a really good question, but I'm trying to think. Strangest thing. You're pointing. So Vicky's just done that. Heart of a bat. Chicken nuggets. Chicken hearts? When did I have chicken hearts? Okay, apparently I've had chicken hearts. I don't remember when. I've had duck heart once. When did I have duck heart? Was it like at a fancy restaurant for your birthday? Okay, we went to a fancy restaurant once for Vicky's birthday and apparently I had heart of some kind of animal. Um, yeah, whether it was a duck or a chicken, who knows? But that's probably good question, good question. Next question from Alex. Uh, there are a lot of game fairs around the world, but as a content creator, stroke retailer, stroke any business related to board games, which ones are a must to attend? Right, the big ones. Um, basically, you've got Essen in Germany, which is uh, in October every year. Or oh, it's called Spiel, but it's it's in Essen, so we all call it Essen, but it's actually called Spiel. There is Gen Con in America. There is uh, Origins in America. There is Pax Unplugged in America. Uh, in the UK, there is UK Games Expo, um, and I believe the Cannes Festival as well is also important. I've never been to Cannes, or Cannes, um, but certainly the other ones. It depends whether you... I, I think they are a must to attend. They are the ones which most of the big board game publishers go to, um, as far as fairs go. If I've missed any, please let me know. And I know there's lots of other ones in the UK, um, but I'm, I'm, if I was to just pick one in the UK that you have to go to, it's the UK Games Expo um, because it's huge um, and it's definitely worth going to it if you're an international 
uh, publisher. So yeah, if, if I've missed any, let me know. But I think they're probably the biggest ones. Next question uh, from Kasak. Do, uh, what is the, uh, I have the best name for my channel. Do I have any alternatives about the name? Yeah, so when I first created the channel, um, and Gaming Rules actually was created um, more... So I've been full-time in the industry now for eight years. But Gaming Rules was created before that. Gaming Rules was created probably about a year before maybe a year and a half before, uh, when I first had the idea that I wanted to create a YouTube channel where I was going to create instructional videos on teaching people how to play games. And we had all sorts of different options for um, what the channel was going to be called. Um, play with Paul was one of the options, uh, but we figured that that probably wasn't really suitable. Um, but there were a number of options at the time. Um, I can't even remember now because I remember creating like the loading sequences, uh, the the trailer thing in uh, in After Effects, and I went through, and I think it was going to be called Learn to Play or something like that. Anyway, I had all sorts of ideas. The actual name, Gaming Rules, with the exclamation mark, came from an old friend of mine called Mark, who I used to play Dungeons and Dragons with when I lived in Hertfordshire, um, and Mark came up with the idea and he said, "Well, why don't you call it Gaming Rules because then." It's a double meaning. Gaming rules? Yes, it does. Gaming rules. Um, but also, gaming rules, because I do rules videos on the channel. Um, yeah, I, I'm really happy with the name, and I think, it, I think it fits. There is a slight downside, is that if some people watch some of my videos, especially going back to some of my old reviews videos, it's called a gaming rules review. Gaming rules is the name of the channel, and I'm doing a review video, and a couple of people... I've had comments on the on the on the YouTube videos that they've watched the video going, well, hang on a minute, I thought you were going to be doing a rules review. And all it is is me giving my opinions on the game. So yeah, there is a slight downside to it. Um but yeah, there were some alternatives at the time, but this is going back nine or so years. I can't quite remember. Apart from as I say, play with Paul. Um but we we, we quickly crossed that one off the list. Um Wild Inferno nineteen eighty four says have I played Star Wars Outer Rim with the Ambition cards? No, I haven't yet. I do want to. Uh, and in fact, it might actually get played this Saturday. So I have played Star Wars Outer Rim with the expansion. I've played it. It's on the channel if you want to go and watch it. Um, but this Saturday, I'm ha actually having uh, a whole bunch of friends around. And we're going to be playing games all day because it's my birthday this weekend. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm doing two days of gaming. I'm doing Friday all day gaming with Patreon supporters all around the world. Um, in fact, the, the game that I'm playing in the morning is going to be fantastic um, because I'm playing it with people who are seven hours ahead of me and also with people who are six hours behind me. So we've literally got people from three different continents playing underwater cities with me on Friday morning, which is going to be fantastic. Um, yeah, Death's joining us from Australia uh, and I think Wade's joining us uh, from somewhere in America. I think you're on the east coast of America, Wade. Um, but yeah, so that's going to be uh, that's going to be fantastic on um, uh, Friday morning. Uh, Juan Ventrilo, I don't know how you pronounce your name, Juan, um, but I can't remember whereabouts you are. So yeah, well, four different continents, I think, or three different continents, four different countries anyway. Um, anyway, the reason why I'm saying that, oh, and if you're a patron supporter, if you're watching this and you're a patron supporter, you will have access to all of the live streams that I'm doing. So all day Friday, I'm playing games. They will all be live streamed. 
Saturday I'm going to be playing games. They will all be live streamed. But as a thank you to all of my patron supporters, all of the live streams, they're not going to be public. They're only going to be for patron supporters uh, this weekend. So yeah, all day games on Friday or all day games on Saturday. And on Saturday, I might be playing Star Wars Outer Rim with the ambitions. If I don't, I'm going to be going to Manicon in the middle of July and I have a game of Star Wars Outer Rim planned and I'm aiming to use the ambitions there. So um, yes, no is the answer for now, but at, at some point in the next couple of weeks, the answer will be yes. Next question from Joe, what are my current Gen Con plans? My current Gen Con plans are to uh, go to Italy uh, on holiday. So yeah, I'm, I'm not going to, uh, to Gen Con this year. I'm actually going away on holiday instead. Um, but even if I wasn't going on holiday, I wouldn't be going to Gen Con this year. And the reason for that is um, over the global pandemic, and I'm not going to speak about COVID as if it's a thing of the past, because it certainly isn't a thing of the past. But during the period where the whole world was in lockdown and events were being cancelled, during that time, I reevaluated my attendance at conventions every year. Because I was going to about between 12 and 15 conventions every year. Uh, and I used to travel to America for Gen Con and Origins. And I've also been to BGG Con before. And I've also been to the World Board Gaming Championships before as well. Um, but I had to make a difficult decision that no matter how much I love those conventions, because Gen Con is fantastic, absolutely amazing. And I recommend everybody go to it at least once because um, it's just unbelievable. Um, that I made a decision that I'm not going to go to them anymore. I was only able to go to them because CGE paid for me to go. So at these American conventions, I was a member of the CGE demo team, which means uh, they paid for my hotel and my accommodation and, you know, accommodation, flights and everything else. Um, but I've, I've stepped back a lot from my role at CGE and I've decided I'm not going to be going to those conventions anymore. There is no way that I could uh, afford to go to Gen Con on my own, just as a, as a, as a regular punter. Um, some people do it from the UK, but they obviously earn a lot more than me um, because it's, it, it's expensive. The flights are about a thousand pound. Then we've got the hotel, which is probably also about a thousand pound. Then I'd be taking eight, sort of seven to 10 days off work in order to, well, at least seven days off work to just go there. So that's, that's an entire week of earnings that I've lost. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a very expensive trip to go to Gen Con. I'm not ruling out out in the future, um, but I would only be able to go, really, if a publisher was interested in, you know, and I, I don't mind demoing all day, every day, because um, with Gen Con, you still get to see the after, the, the out-of-hour out stuff. But yeah, I'm, I'm no Gen Con plans for me this year, I'm afraid. Uh, next question is uh, from Tony. Uh, loves my work on the Batman Gotham City Chronicles. Have I involved the rules for the solo? Uh, yes. So if you're on the Discord channel for Batman Gotham City Chronicles, I literally posted a link earlier on today to say, here is the current draft rulebook for the game. So I've been working on it with Jason Keeping. Jason Keeping is the designer of the solo mode for Batman Gotham City Chronicles. He passed me the draft copy of the rulebook a couple of weeks ago, and I've spent two to three hours a day for the last week and a half working on it. So I am, we're, we're almost there, I think. I think we're about 80% there. But if you are on the Discord channel for the Batman Gotham City Chronicles game, you can see the, uh, the rule book for the solo game right now. And we're, we're looking for feedback and comments. Um, so yeah, I've, I've, I've been working on it. Uh, next question from Wei Jen. Uh, what is a favorite childhood gaming memory that I have? 
Oh, it depends how far you want me to go. Um, yeah, when you say childhood, do you, I'm assuming you mean when I was a child um, and not when I was a teenager. So if we go back to when I was a child, and bear in mind, I don't remember much of it because it was a long time ago now, but I do have a memory of playing Mousetrap at home on my own and just setting it all up, all of the pieces and everything else, and then triggering it going and doing it. Um, that is a very, very strong memory that I, I have. But there was another game that I played as a child, and if Andy Grant is in the chat, you'll know what I'm going to say, Spy Ring. Spy Ring is a game, I think, that came out in 1978 from Waddington's. It's got Telly Savalas on the front cover, the guy who played Kojak. Uh, and I love spy things. So when I was a kid, I absolutely loved anything to do with spies, James Bond and everything else. And Spy Ring was a game where you, you moved around a board and you got these little antennas and you were playing spies and you stuck them in your hat and you could transmit messages to other players and things like that. So I absolutely loved that when I was a kid. And I have a memory of probably just not really playing it with other people, but just going through the motions and playing like multi-handed solo. Um, next question from Chrissy. How is the planning going for my upcoming nuptials? Uh, it's going well. And what's the latest thing that we've just booked? The band. So we've booked a Kaylee band uh, for the evening. Uh, and it's actually a Kaylee band who also does a DJ. So it means we don't have to then have a Kaylee band and also have to get a DJ. They do the whole thing. So um, yeah, that, that's the next thing that's been ticked off the list. We don't have that many things left on the list, do we? You've got to find a dress and 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 uh, you're going to grow a beard. <laughs> you're going to get a hat. Vicky's going to get a hat and grow a beard for the wedding. I didn't know that. That's new. Um, next question from Guppy. Uh, have I seen games, have I seen any games change so much from the early untested versions presented on Kickstarter that you no longer enjoy it when it finally gets delivered? That's a really good question. Um, I don't have much personal experience with that myself. I have a little bit in the... Um, so Mind Clash Games, Perseverance, I covered when it was on Kickstarter, and then I, I've covered it in the final version of the game, and it was a bit different, but it wasn't so massively different. Um, but also Voidfall. I did a video of Voidfall for the Kickstarter campaign with both the designers, Nigel Buckle and David Turcy. Um, and, and then Voidfall went back into development. And Voidfall is very different now from what it was then. I say very different. It's probably fundamentally the same game, but I personally don't have any experience with playing a game while it was on Kickstarter and then getting the game when it came out and it's vastly different. Now, I am going to mention one company here, and I'm mentioning this company just because I've heard that this has happened, and that is Awaken Realms. Now, Awaken Realms are a client of mine, uh, and I have done videos for them, um, and I have done rulebook work for them, but I know that their games do change quite a bit from when they were on Kickstarter. And again, I don't have any personal experience of this, but I've heard a lot of comments from people who got Tainted Grail, that said um, that the game they got was very different from what it was before. And also The Great Wall, I think, was very different. Um, and I think ISS Vanguard is, is going to be quite different as well. Um, now, I personally didn't play Tainted Grail until it actually came out. I haven't played The Great Wall. 
uh, and ISS Vanguard, I didn't play any of the earlier versions, but because I was involved in working on the rulebook, I know all about those changes that were being made because I was implementing those changes by writing the rules in the rulebook. Um, and as I say, I'm, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but I did remember reading a few people's comments to say, oh, this game is different from what it was. I'm quite disappointed in this. I, I personally think that the changes that they've made have made them made it for the better, but I can totally understand. And I'm curious, maybe this is another good question for the guild. I don't know. What, what do we think? Is, is there enough game examples out there of one where it changed so much from when it was on Kickstarter to the end game that you actually no longer enjoy it? I'm not sure if there is enough games that it's worth starting a thread over, but if you've got any examples, please let me know, because I'm curious to see what other people think. I, I don't have any experience of that myself. Uh, question from Andy. So Andy is in the chat. Uh, new games coming out on Kickstarter, game found, whatever, with expansions already as add-ons. And he's asking, should they? Now, this is this is interesting because at some point in July, I'm going to be covering Endless Winter. Endless Winter, I was professionally involved in. Uh, I did a lot of work on the rule books for Endless Winter. Um, and I am going to be producing a series of five tutorial videos for Endless Winter. A multiplayer game for the base game, one with all three expansions, oh, sorry, one with each of the expansions, and I'm going to be doing a solo video as well. So I have a professional working relationship with Fantasia Games, and I worked a lot on Endless Winter. But Endless Winter came out and was on Kickstarter with three expansion sets as add-ons and a whole load of extra modules as well. And they came out, boom, there's the game. That is not normal. Well, it kind of is normal for Kickstarter games. And it's a little strange, because remember, I've been a gamer for a very, very long time. I started going to Essen in 1999. Games came out, and then an expansion would come out one to two years later. And then if it was really successful, another one to two years later, another expansion would come out. That's not how things work in crowdfunding land. In crowdfunding land, expansions for games are coming out with the base game as add-ons personally and again no criticism of anybody who does this but personally i think it should be the base game first and i'm saying that for two reasons the first reason is as somebody who's potentially going to buy a game i don't want to spend all of that money buying the base game and all of the expansions when i might not then like the base game i want to just buy the base game I want to try the base game, and if I love it, then I want the expansions. I don't want to have to make that decision before I've played the base game a few times. The second reason is, from an industry point of view, I think it makes sense to get the game out there, which means you only have one rulebook to do. You don't have six rulebooks to do. You just have one rulebook, one lot of artwork, one lot of graphic design. You make a game, and then the game comes out, and it is published, and then if the game is successful, you can then do an expansion, and in that expansion, you can fix any balance issues from the base game. You can issue errata, you can uh, do uh, reprints of cards that needed fixing, all of that sort of stuff. All of the things that Fantasy Flight games used to do with their games when they produced them is two years later, an expansion came out and it would fix the problems with the base game. That's how it worked with Twilight Imperium, Game of Thrones, all of the other games. And 
That to me just seems a more logical model. But again, as I've mentioned earlier on, although I work in the industry, I work in the industry on rule books and videos and rules and a bit of game development. I don't work in the production, the marketing and everything else. Now, I do know people in the industry who do that and I'm actually going to take this offline and I'm going to go to them and I'm going to ask them the question. I might not be able to give you the answer, um, but I am personally curious why that is done. Is it simply because they will make more money out of it if they do it all as one? Or is it logistically easier? I don't know. I, I, I kind of want to find out myself. And if you're a publisher and you're watching this and you've done that and you've had a game on crowdfunding and you've public and you've, you've put it up there with all of the expansion sets straight away then let me know let me know why you did it next question from zod uh, if concordia was to get a deluxified treatment with pieces oh sorry with prices similar to the castles of burgundy special edition would i get it and why so here's the thing if i wasn't in the position that i was in where I am an influencer and I, I get free copies of games, then I would definitely not be wanting to buy a deluxified version of Concordia. The reason for that is I have all of Concordia. I personally don't think Concordia needs a deluxified version. I think the game is fine as it is. I actually like the aesthetic style of it. I think it's great. And a deluxified version would be exactly the same game, but with prettier components for a more expensive price tag. For me, I wouldn't buy that. However, if PD Verlag decided that they were going to do a deluxified version of Concordia and said, Paul, we're going to be going to Kickstarter with a deluxified version of Concordia. Would you like a copy of the game so that you can cover it on your channel and show it off? I'd be like, oh, maybe. So I'm not going to say no if offered a copy, but I probably wouldn't buy a copy myself. But that's because Concordia, I think, is fine. Now, you've, ref you've, you've, ref you've referred to the Castles of Burgundy Special Edition. Castles of Burgundy, the base game of Castles of Burgundy, is one of the lowest quality games ever printed. So a deluxified version of that is actually a bigger step up than a deluxified version of Concordia, because I personally think everything about Concordia is, is absolutely fine as it is. Right, next question. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce this name probably, Zikutil. Um, am I going to be showing uh, Mushroom Eaters after Pablo or mainly Cave Evil? Last one was recently reprinted in Spanish and Czech. I'm sorry, but I don't know about any of those games. Um, I've, I've not heard of Mushroom Eaters after Pablo or Cave Evil. So it's, it's very unlikely that I'm going to be covering them on the channel because I've not heard of, of any of them. So, um, yeah. Next question from Mark. Can, can we give us a GridCon update? Well, it's funny you should ask Mark. <laughs> I'm really glad somebody asked about GridCon. Um, because GridCon, uh, the best board gaming convention in Somerset? I think so. Is there any other board gaming conventions in Somerset? I don't think there is. No. Apart from JP inviting five people around to his house last Saturday. But that, does, that doesn't count as a convention. So GridCon is happening. Um... In Somerset, in the UK, in November. It is November the 11th to November the 13th. Um, and the current we're, we're currently uh, selling tickets in a three-phase approach. We're currently in phase one, and phase one is coming to an end. Phase one is 
everybody who has booked a room at the hotel where the ven where, where the event is being held has been given the opportunity to buy tickets. Everybody, as of yesterday, has been contacted and most of those people have now booked tickets. There's about six or seven people who haven't yet booked tickets. Please, if you're watching this, if you're one of those people, book your tickets soon. Phase two starts on Friday, okay? So Friday, this Friday, we are gonna be going into phase two for selling tickets, which is to patron supporters. So if you're a patron supporter of mine at supporter level or higher, um, you will be getting contacted on Friday and you will be sent a secret link in order for you to be able to buy tickets. Um, that will be happening on Friday, probably about noon. So yeah, if you're a patron supporter and you wanna to come to GridCon, then Friday is when the tickets will go on sale. Then two weeks after that, roughly two weeks after that, we'll be going into phase three, which is when the ticket sales will go open to the public. Now, just to give you an idea of numbers, we are aiming for 275 people at the event. Everybody who's booked a room so far will buy a ticket. That is approximately 160 people. So we've already sold more than half the tickets because of people who've already booked a room at the event. How many patron supporters are gonna book a ticket in phase two? My guess is about 30 people, something like that. Maybe 40, I don't know. Um, but either way, when we open the tickets to the public, there is likely to only be about 75 tickets available. Now, bearing in mind, a lot of members of the public have already booked tickets because they've booked a room at the hotel. This is purely for the people who haven't already booked a room at the hotel. Um, so yeah, patron supporters are not gonna use up all of the tickets that are available, but there is already a great demand for tickets. And when we make those tickets available to the public, they are gonna sell out quickly. So if you do want to come to GridCon, make sure you keep an eye on the GridCon Facebook page um, because we will be announcing there when tickets will go on sale. Next question from Solo Board Gaming Knight. How often do I play board games for my own personal enjoyment? I always play. No, I know what you mean. Um, that's actually a good question. So I'm fortunate in the way that my hobby and my career overlap. Now, there are certain occasions where I am covering a game on the channel because I have agreed to cover it and I might not particularly enjoy that game. Why would I then agree to cover the game, a game which I don't enjoy? Well, there's two reasons for that. I seem to be saying there's two reasons for that a lot tonight, but there is two reasons. First of all, let's, let's pick on Mind Clash games, right? Mind Clash games are a client of mine I've worked with them for years and I cover, I've done videos for them on Voidfall, I've done videos for them on Septima, I've done videos for them on um, Perseverance. That's it. Now, I have covered Trickerian on the channel and I have covered Anachrony on the channel, but they weren't sponsored. So I've been working professionally with Mind Clash for about three years now, I think. Um, and if Mind Clash games do another game, it is very likely that they will ask me to cover it on the channel as a sponsored commission video because that's what that's what I do, right? Um, the Perseverance videos that I did for them, I think went well, and I think they were very happy with them. So they might, I'm hoping, cross fingers, that they will ask me to do the official how to play video for Voidfall. I really hope they do. 
But then what happens if they also say, look, Paul, you're, you're the guy that makes our how to play videos. You did the ones for Perseverance and they were fantastic. You're going to do the one for Voidfall if you agree to it. We also want you to do one for Septima. Let's say, for example, they want me to do an official how to play video for Septima. And let's say, for example, that I don't like Septima. Now, that's not true, but I'm just hypothetically speaking, I might have a relationship with a client where I do all of their how to play videos. And what happens when they make a game that I don't like? That means I'm going to have to play the game in order to learn the game well enough in order to be able to then cover it on the channel and do a how to play video. That might happen. Uh, but, but very often I end up covering games that I actually really like. And if I'm being paid to do it because it's a sponsored video, then, then great. Um, but the question is, how often do I play games for my own personal enjoyment? Um, I would, I would say if you have a, if you have a look at my channel, um, and I'm trying to be very, I'm trying to be, well, I'm not trying to be, I am fully transparent about this. So let's have a look at this week's schedule, right? I mean, this, this week is a little bit special, but I'm just gonna have a look at this week's schedule and I'm gonna pull it up on screen now. Uh, if I can do this, I'm gonna add an image, change the image. Uh, here we go. And I'm gonna move that to here. I'm gonna pull it up on screen. There we go. That is this week's schedule. So Tuesday, as you can see, yesterday at two o'clock in the afternoon, I did a live solo playthrough of Shoes Tactics. That was a sponsored video. Uh, the, the, the designer of that game contacted me. Uh, he's a big fan of mine, apparently. Um, and he, re he designed this game and he really wanted me to cover it on the channel. So that was a sponsored video. So I did not play that game purely for my enjoyment. Now, I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it because I did, but I did not play that game for my enjoyment. Um, actually, this is a weird week because tonight I'm playing For the King, Patreon only. It's not a board game. It's a computer game, but it's very like a board game. Tomorrow, I'm, all I'm doing is an unboxing. But here we go. Friday and Saturday, as you can see, I am playing games all day. They are all for pleasure. So on Friday, I'm going to be playing Underwater Cities. I'm going to be playing Boone Lake and I'm going to be playing Australia. I will probably also be playing some games of Gloomhaven Digital and probably some games of Codenames and maybe a game of just one. All of the games that I'm playing on Friday are for my own enjoyment. Then on Saturday, I'm going to be playing Perseverance. I'm going to be playing um, Endless Winter. I'm going to be playing Stars of Akarios, and I might also squeeze in a game of Batman Gotham City Chronicles. They are all being played for pleasure. So this week is a little unusual, but if I go back to, say, the previous week, um, maybe, yeah, let's have a look at this one. Here we go. So here's the previous week. I did Sniper Elite solo playthrough on Wednesday evening. Um, that was sponsored. Rebellion Unplugged wanted me to cover the solo game of that. I did Gloomhaven Digital, that was for fun. I did For the King. Okay, so that's an unusual week as well. Mini Express, that was a sponsored video. That was a that was a week where uh actually, yeah, there was I'm just going back. I'm trying to answer the question, but Yeah, no, I, it, it it's weird. Because It's probably 50%. And and I, I actually want to get into a position where I'm doing 50%. Where I'm aiming for with the channel moving forward is that 50% of the content that I create is because I want to play the game. 
and 50% is sponsored in some way. I don't want to have any more sponsored content than 50%. Basically, I want to make more videos of me playing games for Patreon supporters. And once, and I keep saying this, but if I wasn't working on the Batman Gotham City Chronicle rulebook this week, I would have done some extra content. But that's dragged me away from doing it because I, I've got to get it done. I've got to get it finished. But once that's out of the way, hopefully I will be doing more I will do more content. I've kind of a bit faffed around with this. Um, th yeah, th there will be lots more content coming from games that I, I am playing for fun. And of course, not to mention stuff that I'm playing that are, isn't on the channel. So uh, when I go to the games club, I go to a local games club in Cranbrook every other week. I play games there. That is sometimes for fun. Sometimes I'm learning a game in order to cover it on the stream. But I've got Manicon coming up in two weeks' time. Two weeks? Three weeks? Three weeks' time. Uh, so I'm going to a three-day uh, board game convention in Leicester in the middle of July, and I will spend three days non-stop playing games. That will all be for fun. Um, so yeah, probably more than 50%. Right, have we got any other questions? I think that's it. And it's half six. We've done it again. We've done it again. I don't know how this happens, but all of these live Q&As for the last few months have always ended up being exactly one and a half hours long, which is brilliant because dinner's on, isn't it? Yeah, dinner's on. Right, just before I disappear, a few things I want to say. First of all, a huge thank you to all of my patron supporters. As I mentioned earlier on, this channel only exists because of the support of my patron supporters. So a big thank you uh, for giving me the financial flexibility to take time off work and create these videos. Um, if you are watching this video and you want to support the channel directly, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash gaming rules. Also, the contest. Don't forget, you can enter the contest whether you are a patron supporter or not. All you need to do is click on the form, uh, go, go to the Google form, the secret word is Billy, and I will do the draw next month. And congratulations again to Graham, who won the contest for last month. Um, what else have we got to talk about? I think that's everything. Oh, the Guild. Yeah, if you're interested in some of the things that we've uh, been speaking about, head on over to the Guild on Board Game Geek, uh, Guild number 2258. Join up, subscribe, otherwise you don't, won't get any notifications. Uh, and that's that. And I think that's everything. So, yeah. Um, as I say, if, if you are a patron supporter of mine, you are in for a treat. All day Friday, I will be streaming all of the games that I'm playing and all day Saturday. And if you're not a patron supporter, I don't want you to think that I'm putting my content behind a paywall. I mean, effectively, I am, okay? Effectively, I am saying you can watch me playing games all day, but you have to be a patron supporter in order to see that content. But... Let me just get one thing clear. The videos which I'm going to be doing on Saturday are literally going to be a camera in the room and the overhead microphone. Those videos are more like a behind-the-scenes view of Paul playing games with his friends. I will not be doing any fancy camera angles. I will not be talking to the audience. I will not be doing anything like that. Uh, all of that normal stuff that I do if it is a proper video that I want to be on the channel, I will not be doing that on Saturday. It will literally be the overhead camera, the overhead microphone, and you will be able to see us playing a game. That's it. So it is, is very much a behind the scenes view. And some of those games that I'm playing, like Endless Winter, we're gonna be learning from the rulebook. And I, I kind of don't really feel comfortable, especially when I'm gonna be producing proper videos on Endless Winter, for there to be a public video of 
oh, watch Paul fumble his way through the rulebook and learn how to play the game and then practice it. That's not really a video which I think should be on my channel for public consumption. Um, especially because, as I say, I'm going to be doing proper videos for that game and this is going to be the first time I will have played the game. And that's going to be this weekend. So, uh, yeah, we, we, are, we are done. We're finished. It's off for dinner. What we've got? Salmon something or other? Right. Um, and, again, if you're a patron supporter... Tonight, probably around, not 7 o'clock, because that's 30 minutes time, maybe 7.30, maybe 8 o'clock, I'm going to be playing For the King. For the King is a great computer game that is very similar to a board game. Um, and I did a Patreon-only stream last week, and I really enjoyed it, uh, and people watching really enjoyed it. So if you want to see part two, that's happening tonight. I will post the link on the Slack channel. Um, so if you're, not, if you're a Patreon supporter and you're not on the Slack channel, get on the Slack channel, because that's where a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the discussion happens and it's really good. I don't want this Q&A to end. I think this has gone really well and I'm really happy with it. And I know you're really hungry and I'm really hungry. But normally we get to the end of these Q&As and I'm absolutely exhausted. And I'm actually thinking, oh, thank God that's over. Because I want to go for food and I want to have a lie down. Actually, this one, I've enjoyed this a lot. I could, I could. Should we just skip dinner and do this for another hour and a half? Vicky is shaking her head at me. I'm going to disappear now. I think I'm in a good mood. I don't know why. Anyway. I'm going to disappear now. I will see some of you later on and I will see the rest of you later on for some more videos. Take care, everybody. See you later on. Bye-bye. <laughs>